Well, welcome back to Logically Faithful. I am Keldun Swice, your host for Season 2, Episode Number 8. I am Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago, Olive Harvey College, and tutor with philosophy with Oxford University. I am the father of two wonderful children and one wife. I thank you for joining me, and I look forward to having an interaction with you on this wonderful topic where we engage the mind, helping the believer to think and the thinker to believe deeper about the fundamental issues of life, navigating through the deepest, darkest times of your life using evidence. Let's go ahead and get started. Well, welcome back to the Logically Faithful podcast. This is Caldoun Swice. In this particular episode, we were discussing five proofs for the soul. The point I'm making is you don't have a soul, you are a soul. Cultivate and nourish and nurture your soul, and then you will nurture yourself. In 2006, when my son died, it was one of the darkest periods of my life. When we buried him, my niece Ariana was at the gravesite. And she says, heard somebody say that he's in a better place or um, uh, he's in heaven right now. And she responded saying, how could that be? How could he be there when he's actually here in the ground? And Ariana, at the time she was young, right now she's a lot older, uh, made an astute comment. If the body is all we are, then when we die, it's over. The chapter is closed, the case is over, the chapter is finished, the door is closed, the lights are off. Nothing else exists. However, what if there is more to life than the body itself? So what I'll be doing here is giving you five proofs for the soul. And uh, at the end of this time, we'll be opening up for some discussion. And hopefully you'll be able to uh, email me and we'll get into some uh, counter uh, issues and rebuttals and possibly counter rebuttals to that. See, Francis uh, uh, Crick in his book, The Astonishing Hypothesis, The Scientific Search for the Soul, actually claims that the astonishing hypothesis is that there is no soul. We ha never had and never will have a soul. And what is his reason for this? One of the reasons he argues in his book is because we have not been able to find positive evidence for the soul. Well, what he's getting at there is he's looking for physical evidence, which is called a category mistake, giving an example of this. You see, a category mistake is when you, uh, make a, 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 when you make the mistake of looking for one thing in something that's of a diff completely different category. For example, when someone will ask, does God exist? Uh, and uh, not does God exist, but who made God? This is considered a category mistake because God is not of the type of things that has a creator. So it would be impossible for me to answer the question of who made God because God doesn't have a creator to make him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. This is something that the philosopher Gilbert Ryle wrote about in his book in 1949 called The Concept of the Mind. See, he tells it like this. Here's a story. Imagine you go to Oxford University in England, and in Oxford, England, and uh, you walk through the different colleges there. You go to Magdalen College, and you ask, excuse me, where's Oxford University? You say, here, you're in it now. You say, no, I'm in Magdalen College. I want Oxford University. And the people tell you, you can't find Oxford University, the physical university, because the 
university is divided into colleges. So you go, you, you ignore them and you go to a different college there and you walk into, let's say, the humanities department over there and then you ask, is there, where is Oxford University in the Center for Distance Learning, for example? Uh, and they tell you, uh, there is no Oxford University. There's only subcategories of colleges within Oxford University. And then you get frustrated and you walk out. The reason you're frustrated is you will never find Oxford because you're making a category mistake. Oxford University is divided into subcategories of colleges in the town of Oxford. In the same way, somebody looking for the soul, a physical soul, will never find it because the soul is not physical. So if there is such a thing as a soul, you'll need other reasons to categorize it, to give evidence for it as a real entity. So what I'm going to be giving you here is rational reasons, logical reasons of why there is such a thing as a soul. And remember, this soul creature, this soul entity, this soul being that we would have, and I'm arguing that you are not a soul, you, that you don't have a soul, you are a soul. So cultivate it and nurture it, because you'll be nurturing yourself. So if you go through an MRI scanner or a CT scanner or an MRI scanner, you will not find the soul in there, registered on an on a, on a image anywhere of that effect, because such a thing is not physically registered on anything in the quantifiable universe. So we'll need to give you rational reasons of why such a thing exists. So these, these are the rational reasons here. Let me give you five. Let me go through them with you. The first is personal experience or what philosophers call qualia. You are now listening to this podcast, hearing my voice. Hopefully I'm not giving you a headache. You have a conscious experience of it. So when I say you have a conscious experience, what I'm speaking about is becoming aware of that experience. So when you wake up from the, in the evening, uh, in the middle of the night, or if you wake up in the morning, you become slowly aware of the alarm clock going off or sounds outside the window. And hopefully you know the person you wake up with. <laughs> uh, that would be a little bit of a problem now, wouldn't it? Well, you're becoming aware. That's what I mean by consciousness. And this consciousness is an, what philosophers call qualia. It's not physical. Uh, uh, Thomas Nagel called it the view from nowhere because it's nowhere to be found in our physical brains. It is subjective, it's personal, it's first-person experience, it's, but it's genuinely undeniable. This qualia, this experience you have cannot be quantified in any physical mechanism in the known universe give you an ex another example of this. So, a number of years ago, well, a couple years ago, I broke my, um, uh, I had some serious problems with my leg. It wasn't fully broken, but I had some problems with nerve endings. And when I went in there and I was talking to the doctor, the podiatrist, about the pain, and they'd give me a list and ask me, on this list, how much pain are you in? Well. The list had these emojis on there of different levels of um, uh, screaming, and the one at the end had peace. And they asked me how much. My first inclination is to go after the materialist mindset and think if there is, uh, if you believe all the physical is all there is, then you tell me how much pain I'm in. Now, the problem is they can't tell me how much pain I'm in. Now, can they? Because it's not physical. Yes, the nerve ending, the nerve damages are physical, but the pain I'm experiencing in those is not. 
It's a qualitative experience that's not physical. That's why it's called qualia or experiential. So that's the first reason that you're more than your body or that you have a soul. Let's go to the second one. Uh, our unity of consciousness or our unified experience. This unified experience is beyond in principle a physical description. It's called the binding problem in consciousness studies. I, you are listening to this podcast now. You may be driving. Uh, maybe you're watching the red lights change, or maybe you're watching people walk by. Maybe you're watching people you shouldn't be watching. Whatever it is, <laughs> the, the experience that you have in listening to this and having all these other things that you're doing, whether you're doing laundry or other, other uh, non-cognitive functions, uh, these are a unified experience. There's, there's a part of you that unifies everything together. Uh, we call it in, in cognitive studies HOTS, or higher order thinking. Um, these thoughts or higher order thinking report on our inner lives. But animals do not have HOTS, or higher order thinking. See, an animal, like a dog, he knows that he's hungry, he knows that he's in danger, but he doesn't know that he knows that he's hungry or doesn't know that he knows that he's in danger. That would require deeper thinking, introspective thinking on a deeper existential level. Human persons alone, in addition to having this unified experience, are also aware of having this unified experience. This unity of consciousness, as it's called, is a harmony of all our experiences at once that we are aware of. For example, my liver right now is processing my blood and cleaning it. I'm not aware of that. I'm not aware of my heart pumping blood in my body or the neurological firings in my brain, uh, establishing the uh, connections of pleasure as I'm doing this podcast or pain, depending on the circumstance. Uh, I'm not aware of certain things, but there are other things that I am aware about, such as um, going through this podcast with you, giving you an experience of what, what actually this is, and, and going through the list. This is a unified experience. But what part of my physical body is unified in the brain that puts this all together? All the cognitive research studies have shown that there is no one part that does that. For example, self, Francis Crick, self-proclaimed atheist, wrote in his book, The, uh, the, the, the Astounding, Astonishing Hypothesis, that although there are many visual regions in the brain, each of which analyzes visual input in different ways, we have not been able to locate one single region which neural activity corresponds exactly to the vivid picture of the world we see in front of our eyes. In short, we can see how the brain takes a picture apart, but we do not yet understand how it puts the picture together. Alternatively, some view closer to the religious one, the soul, may be actually more plausible. Isn't that ironic, coming from Francis Crick, who doesn't even believe in souls? And uh, uh, William Hasker, which actually read part of my thesis, uh, who does a research on Bible and humanities at Huntington College, who's a great philosopher in his own right, writes that a person's being aware of a complex fact does not consist in parts of that person being aware of the parts of the fact. Nor can a complex state of consciousness exist distributed among parts of a complex object. The soul is a single unified unity. And that is what is the unified experience that we have. So number two, this is the second reason you are more than your body. So the first reason I argue that you don't just have a soul, you are a soul, that you need to cultivate that and work on that, is that you have experience. Secondarily, you have a unification of that experience. Moving on now to number three your undisputed free choices, what we call free will. 
Now, there are different theories in, in uh, different theories among what actually is free will, whether it's libertarian, whether it's uh, determinist, whether it's uh, something between the two, compatibilist, etc. But in order for you to even have ability to even choose above and over and above your nature, you would have to be more than your nature or more your body. And his classic work, which I recommend, I'll put that in the, in the, uh, the blog part there, The Conceivability of Mechanism by Norman Malcolm, Norman Malcolm. He argues that if mechanism, or that is naturalism, if you are just a physical, biological organism, then every move and decision you make is based on prior causal factors. All organisms with neurological, neurophysical systems, including human beings, would thus be then determined. However, get this, guys, get this. If naturalism is true, then we should be able to produce a theory that is adequate to explain all the actions in the human being before they make it. However, we are not able to do that because the anomaly of free will gets in the way. No matter how much you study somebody, no matter how much background research you do on them, more than likely they may actually do what you plan for them to do. However, they can still say no. They don't have to do what is inevitable, inevitable in your research. Uh, you are a free creature able to make free choices. And I remember a student wrote a paper for me a number of years ago where he argued that there is no such thing as free will. And I asked him in his paper, did you freely write this? He said, what? I said, you heard me. Did you freely choose this topic? He said, yes. Uh, so you didn't choose a different topic because you wanted to write on this one. He said, yes. Then your paper is disproved by itself. So what do you mean? So you're writing on your paper that there's no free will, yet you argue that you freely chose this topic. See, it's a paradoxical position. All right. So third reason that you are more than your body, that you are more that you are not, that you don't just have a soul, that you are a soul, is that you have free will. Number four, intentionality. Now, I don't mean you're intentionally choosing something. Intentionality is a specific term in philosophical enterprise. It's called aboutness or of ofness. That is, what you think about things. So your thoughts are directed toward the content of an object which only conscious beings can do. For example, this computer is not about anything. This, this microphone of music is not about anything. But my thoughts are about something. Books are about something. This is about what we call intentionality or aboutness. Let me give you a quote here by Elvin Plantiga, one of my heroes in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, who retired recently and just got his Nobel, not a Nobel, but a Templeton Prize, which is um, actually more than a Nobel Prize in, um, uh, for religion. It's more money, by the way. Anyway, here's what Plantinga says. Listen to this, guys. This is great. We can examine the neural events as carefully as we please. We can measure the number of neurons it contains, their connections, their rates of fire, the strength of electronic impulses involved, the potential across synapses with as much precision as you could possibly desire. We can consider its electrochemical, neurophysiological properties in the most exquisite detail. But nowhere here will we find so much as a hint of content. What, what um, Plantinga is talking about there is when you examine the neurological firings of the brain, the human brain, you will not find my mother or my thoughts of Superman or Wonder Woman or my thoughts of the President of the United States or what's happened recently in Egypt. Just, just yesterday, over 250 people were killed in a mosque attack, which is terrible. <laughs> but that is something I, it's, my thoughts are about that. But this aboutness shows that there's more to my body than just the body. These 
aboutness principle is my thoughts that are not physical because they do not have weight, volume, mass, or color. They're private in their first person experience. No one has access to these thoughts but me. I am the thinker. Nobody can access that. Why? Because it's an intentional thing. It's an about thing. It's about thoughts, and thoughts are not physical. Let's go to number four. So, uh, in summarizing, uh, the first reason you are more than your soul, that you are a soul, you don't just have a soul and a body, is your experiences. Number two, your unification of those experiences or unity of consciousness. Number three, your indisputable free choice. Number four, your intentionality that your thoughts are about something and that something that your thoughts are about proves that your thoughts are not themselves physical. Uh, they're about things that are not physical. Uh, number four. Number five, finally, let's come down to personal numeric identity. Personal numeric identity. What am I talking about there? Well, according to the New York Times, let me give you an example here. I'll, I'll, I'll clarify it. Manuel Gonzalez, a New Jersey truck driver, was convicted of second-degree murder on September 30, 1999, a two-decade-old slaying of an off-duty police officer. How can we, now listen to this, how can we convict Mr. Gonzalez of a crime he committed over 30 years ago? On what grounds is he, quote, the same person, unquote, when basically all, if not most, of his biological body has been completely different than the one he had in 1977? He had, um, his, his uh, DNA had um, altered, his, his body chemistry has altered. He may have the same fingerprints, but what makes him the exact same person? I mean, he can argue I change, I've rejuvenized, no, re re retrofitted my life, so to speak, or I'm reborn. You know, some people in religious backgrounds say that. But is he the same Mr. Gonzalez who killed that police officer? Can we argue he is? Not if his whole body has changed. I mean, can we say that he's the same being? Let's say he was getting a, um, a specific um, inheritance from his uncle that was given to him when he was five years old. But when he's 55 years old, he's a completely different entity by then, is he not? The body has changed, his brain has changed, his, his whole structure has changed. So what makes him the same thing? Well, uh, John Locke would argue it's a continuity of consciousness that makes him the same thing. But what is that one thing across time that gives him that? Now, this is an argument I found to be helpful. It's called personal numeric identity. There is something about Mr. Gonzalez that keeps him the same throughout time. We call that the continuity of psychological existence across time. Because we have a soul, it is most reasonable to convict Mr. Gonzalez and give him another trial after we can find him as the same person who committed that crime in 1999. Or what he did in 1977, excuse me, um, that he was convicted in 1999 for the crime. He's also the same being who would get the inheritance that he had at five years old that he is when he's 55. But what makes him the same being? The soul is. Although Descartes also proved that the connection of the body and person is more than just a pilot in a ship. See, Descartes argue, uh, argued that we're just like a pirate in a ship, or a pirate, I guess we could be a pirate, yeah, in a ship. If you take the pirate out, he can't use the ship anymore. In the same way, the soul is in the body, in the same way the pirate is in the ship. If you take the pirate out, he can't use the ship. Although there's a problem with that, and I've been doing some work on that recently in the last few years, um, the reading, that you are more than just a pirate in a ship, or a pilot in a ship. Actually, I'm arguing you are the ship as much as the ship is you. You are your body as much as you are your soul. 
But for now, I'm focusing on the soul aspect of the being, the psychosomatic unity of a person called the body and soul, which makes you human. Take, for example, somebody who's suffering from a neurological disorder called Down syndrome, resulting in manifold disabilities that might even impair your cognitive thinking processes, or traumatic brain injuries, TBI, or people in vegetative states, persistent vegetative states. They can change the actual structure of the brain and the body. Uh, the Brain Injury Association of America talks about the importance of the brain and the structure of who you are. If you alter the brain, you end up altering the person. This is so important because we can't just reduce a person to just a body. Also argue, we can't just reduce them to a mind either. Listen to this incredible example. In 1848, Phineas Gage uh, was a documented worker on the railroad way, and he was pumping um, uh, his, his hammer and a work and putting a dynamite as they were creating the tracks across the United Trains, the train, train tracks. One day he was putting a, um, uh, a huge metal bar into the earth, and with dynamite they'd blow it down into the earth, creating the railway structure that we have across these wonderful United States. One day, however, the dynamite went backward. It blew the rod, which was three inch thick, three foot long rod, through Gage's skull, exiting the other side of his left cheek, leaving a hole right in the center of his skull. Now here's the problem with this. Gage actually survived. He went on to actually work in circuses carrying that, uh, that rod with him. His best friends and colleagues and family reported that Gage, his entire personality altered after the event causing his friends to say that this is no longer Gage. Phineas Gage's skull and life mask have actually been preserved today at Harvard Medical School's Warren Anatomical Museum in Boston. You can go check it out. I plan to do that pretty soon. And you guys may know people who have had severe brain injuries or fallen off a motorcycle and crushed uh, parts of their head and actually survived, those who survived, that is. And how foolish it is to ride a motorcycle without a helmet. Uh, like in Illinois, there's no law uh, against that. But anyway, that's a different story. Uh, when you change your brain, when you change your body, you alter your mind. I mean, I, if I'm drinking a bottle of Hennessy, I can no longer think rationally or do mathematical research. <laughs> and in the same way, when I'm thinking about something that's deeply personal, I can actually generate tears in my, uh, in my eyes. The brain affects the body as much as the body affects the brain. Both the body and soul are critical to what it means to be human. I'm arguing that you don't just have a soul, you are a soul. So I recommend you cultivate and nurture that as you nurture yourself. So those are the five reasons why there is such a thing as a soul and why you are a soul. And I hope that these reasons will help you in defending that. So in this podcast and series, I've been trying to give you evidences of why I believe um, that the 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 pontifications of Jesus Christ, what he actually says, what the ch Christian church has been pouring forward for the last 2,000 years is in fact true. And what I believe about it is in fact true. It's not just what I want to be. It's not just true for me or my family, my religion. It's actually true for every man, woman, and child on the planet Earth and everywhere else. And in order for it to be true, I have to, I'm going to believe it. It has to correspond to reality. And I have to give you reasons why you should accept what I'm saying. And you need to give yourself reasons when you're going through the deepest, darkest times of your life of why you believe that what you believe is not just um, a caricature of a belief system, but it's actually true. So, and in summary, 
Um, I gave you five reasons to believe that you're more than your soul. Um, excuse me, more than your body. Qualia, which is experience. Unity of consciousness, which is the unification of your experience. Intentionality, which is that there's thoughts in you that are more than physical and they're about things. Uh, and that you have free will, number four. And number five, personal identity. You are more than your body across time. No matter how much your body changes, you change. Let me ask, uh, this, this quite, let, me, let me conclude with this question here. Um, people will ask, uh, okay, so we have a soul. Now, why does it matter that we have a soul? I mean, couldn't we just live without it? Well, no, you can't. J.P. Moreland, in his wonderful book, The Soul, How We Know It and It's Real and Why It Matters, uh, by, um, I think it's a Moody Press published that. According to J.P. Moreland, there are four reasons. By the way, J.P. Moreland is one of my uh, intellectual mentors. I strongly recommend his work, a wonderful man of God and a wonderful philosopher and researcher and apologist. He says the first reason is the Bible teaches that consciousness and the soul are immaterial and we need to regard the teachings as genuine knowledge, not as faith commitments that are merely things that we hope for. The Bible itself teaches that the body is more than the soul. Excuse me, uh, that, that you are more than just your body. When Jesus was on the cross and he was dying, a thief on the cross said to him, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You know what Jesus said to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will. Now how could that be unless when they both died and were in the grave, especially Jesus for three days? Well, his body was in the grave. Jesus had also two natures. Actually, you can break that down to four natures in the body, soul, and then being God himself. But that's a whole different discussion. But anyway, Jesus' body went to the earth, and his soul, or his spirit, went to heaven. And he actually went to hell or the, uh, the netherworld and took some souls out of there and took them to heaven. And that's a different debate. But when he met the thief on the cross, he would actually connect him to God in that realm and tell him, you are with me in paradise. And then there's the ultimate connection between the, um, the redeemed and God at the end of time where there's a resurrection of the dead. But that's a whole different discussion. The, body, the Bible talks about an intermediate state between death and resurrection. And that intermediate state is where the body is in the earth and the soul is somewhere else and then they're unified. Third, second reason, the reality of the soul is important to various ethical principles that are critically involved in the understanding of human beings. Take, for example, the abortion debate or the, um, the euthanasia debate. Somebody's in a hospital. Uh, are they just a body? If they are, then when their body stops functioning, we can no longer treat them as human beings, right? No, we can treat them as more than human, more than that, just a body. You're more than a body. When grandma no longer functions in the hospital, she's still grandma. We are to treat her with dignity and respect, made in the image of God. When a, a baby is uh, born hydrophallic or the, the brain is not functioning properly, is that still a human person to be treated with dignity and respect? Yes, because not only are they a body, they're also a soul in a body. There's so many other implications to this within the cloning, etc. Third, uh, Moreland talks about the loss of belief in life after death is related to a commitment to the authority of science above theology, the belief that the soul is being scientifically discredited. See, third, what Moreland's talking about there is the acceptance, the blind acceptance, if you ask me, of naturalism as a paradigm for understanding the world. And I have a, a free ebook for you on my website. Just sign up on logicallyfaithful.com. You'll get a book called Blind Spots of Science, which debunks this myth that science can explain everything. Blind Spots of Science is a wonderful book, you should get that, which talks about the third thing here that Moreland reflects on, that the physical world is not all there is. We need to stop buying that lie. Okay, number four, and finally, 
Understanding the immaterial nature of the human spirit is critical to grasping the essence of spiritual growth. Now, for me to grow as a man, as a father, as, a, as an employee, I need to cultivate the inner man, what my, my, my being within myself, my introspective soul. How can I do that if I don't have one? So those are four reasons why the soul is important as well as the five reasons I gave you why it exists. It's important because the Bible teaches it. Secondarily, it's important because of ethical implications. Third, the loss of the belief in the soul is resulting in an embracing of naturalism, which is false, or a belief that the physical is only real. And finally, the soul is critical to understanding spiritual growth. You can't grow within yourself if there is no self within you to grow. So those are the four reasons why the soul exists. In addition to the five reasons I gave you, I mean, four reasons the soul is important. <laughs> in addition to the five reasons the soul exists. I hope that helps you as you are inspired to go forward and make a difference in your world. So go ahead and let me go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, you can follow me on logicallyfaithful.com as a website. My Twitter handle is uh, Socratic Knight, or just type in Keldoon Swice. And go ahead and email me if you have any questions. Uh, it's a question and answer time. I'll be happy to engage that. We're running short on this episode for that. My email is Keldoon, K-H-A-L-D-O-U-N, at logicallyfaithful.com. I look forward to hearing from you and engaging with your wonderful questions. Please leave a review on iTunes if you found this to be helpful. Now go make the world a better place. One life. <laughs>